0: Welcome to Talk Cocktail. I'm your host, Jeff Scheckman. Sometimes teams and athletes don't just define individual games, but define years and even eras that shape our collective memory. Sometimes a sports team encapsulates a particular year, Like the 1998 and 1927 Yankees, the 96 Chicago Bulls, the 1985 Chicago Bears, the 1972 Lakers, the 1989 49ers, and the 1967 UCLA Bruins. At other times, a team becomes a symbol of not just a year, but an entire era. Take the Celtics from 60 to 66, the Packers from 61 to 67, and the Yankees from 1927 to 1932. And then there are those rare moments when an individual athlete becomes the embodiment of a time period. Steffi Graf in 1988, Tiger in 2000, Gretzky in the 81-82 season, and Will Chamberlain in 1961-62. But it's exceedingly rare to pinpoint a year where an entire league reaches its zenith. For basketball, particularly in the modern NBA era, that defining season might very well have been 1987 1988. It was a year of remarkable on-court battles and equally captivating off-court drama. It featured the likes of Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Isaiah Thomas, and Michael Jordan. It was the story of four historic teams, their legendary players, and one unforgettable season. To bring this incredible story to life, I'm joined by Rich Cohn. Rich is the author of several New York Times bestsellers, including Tough Jews, Monsters, and the Chicago Cubs' story of a curse. He's a columnist for the Wall Street Journal, co-creator of the HBO series Vinyl, and a contributing editor at Vanity Fair and Rolling Stone. It is my pleasure to welcome Rich Cohn back to this program to talk about his newest work, When the Game Was War, the NBA's Greatest Season. Rich Cohn, welcome back to the program.
1: Uh, thanks so much uh, for having me. Nice to talk to you again.
0: Well, it is great to have you here. Talk a little bit about how you decided that an entire season could, could define a, an entire league. Well, when I
1: started looking back at the NBA of my childhood, which was this era, the 80s and the 90s, I thought it was a golden age of the NBA, similar to like the early 60s, maybe in Major League Baseball. Or, and, it was a, and when I found this year, it was like the perfect point in the balance because there were four historic dynasties uh, existing and fighting at the same time, which I don't think you've ever had that many. They're historically great teams. So you had the Celtics who of Larry Bird and Robert Parrish and Kevin McHale, and they were older. They were getting old. They were past their prime, but they were still a great team, and they were still the Boston Celtics. And arguably, a couple of years before, it had been the greatest team of all time. Then you had the Lakers. That was a year of their repeat that was the Showtime Lakers with Magic and uh, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and, um, and Byron Scott, and they were a great team. And many people that I talked to said they thought that was the best team of all time. Then the Pistons, who really don't get their due, that was the bad boys of Isaiah Thomas. They were already the best team in the league that year, even though they didn't win the championship. They were kind of robbed in game six of that, those finals. If they had won that championship, which they would have won three in a row, which would have made them in the conversation of the best teams of all time. And then, so a little bit off stage, like still young, still nascent, still becoming, was the Michael Jordan Bulls. It was the first year that Jordan, uh, the Bulls, won fifty games since the early seventies. Jordan won his first MVP, and you had as rookies on that team Horace Grant and Scottie Pippen, and a new player coming off the bench was John Paxson, and the head coach was Doug Collins, but the assistant coach was Phil Jackson. So all the pieces were there. They just weren't center stage. And I thought it was kind of like the context, the crucible out of which the Bulls emerged. And they would, in my opinion, be the greatest team of all winning six in eight years.
0: The other thing about it that seems unique is that it was a period of time in the modern NBA when they were still focused on teams, per se, because as the NBA evolved, it has always seemed that, that, unlike football, for example, that the focus of the NBA became on individual players more than teams. Talk about that. Well,
1: some of it has to do with the way the rules were changed, and some of the rules were changed because of the Pistons. Because the Pistons of the I'm talking about figured out they played a very violent game. that's the game was war, that's the Pistons. And they were able to shut down teams that were, were more offensive minded, more athletically gifted by by having a real strategy and playing a real tough version of basketball that we recognized from the playgrounds of Chicago, which was where Isaiah was from. And um, basically, once you got rid of that and you focused the game so much on offense and then really the math guys figured out how you could use the three point shot almost exclusively to beat teams that played inside then suddenly a whole kind of player disappeared from the league so a player like rodman is in the hall of fame complete just entirely because of his defense and his rebounding he didn't do anything really offensively and he was you know he was a complete team player and that kind of player disappeared and then because of the way the game is now covered And the fact that you have access to it 24 hours a day, you can watch it on your phone, and there's a lot of fantasy betting on the game, Uh, it puts such a premium on the highlights that the whole game becomes highlights. And, you know, those games, you had to wait all day to watch them. The teams were still very much regional in that they were associated with their city, and they all played in a style that seemed to represent their city, from, you know, the Showtime Lakers like Hollywood to the really blue-collar working class tough, tough Detroit, that uh, you waited for the game and you watched. And when the big play came, it was cathartic because you felt like you had waited for it. I organized this book as just the story of four regular season games plus the playoffs and the finals because I wanted to bring it back to the game and the games that really matter not the season, not the championship, but there were real rivalries. And every game between the Bulls and the Pistons or the Pistons and the Celtics, Who had maybe even just as fierce of a rivalry was like itself. It's like they say uh, Michigan can win every game of the season and win the Rose Bowl in football, but lose to Ohio State. It's a bad season. Same with the way these teams played each other and felt about each other.
0: Didn't Larry O'Brien have some role in, in shaping the league to focus on individuals as opposed to teams and games?
1: I think that everything is shaped by the coverage. And you have to remember that at this time, uh, when when uh, Magic and Larry Bird came into the game, they weren't even showing those games live the playoffs. You had to wait on the tape delay, and sometimes you couldn't see them at all. The Bulls really weren't on TV. The NBA was a small league. It was like more akin to the NHL. I mean, the NHL now is bigger than the NBA was then probably. So I think that they followed the interest where, you know, the players went and the stars realized that to get paid, You had to become an individual player who stood out, who got a lot of highlights. And um, to do that, it just became an individual game and a game of stars. And then I think also, you know, free agency, as far as the teams go, the free agency destroyed the concept of the teams because we watched Jordan arrive in 84 and then, you know, stay with that team until 96 or 97. So he stayed there for like 13 seasons. We watched that team build around him. And you got to watch Jordan play with Scottie Pippen for 13 years, and with Phil Jackson for 13 years. You just don't see that anymore. And it sort of destroyed the team concept, mostly, worst of all, I think, for fans. You know, now when I go to like a uh, souvenir shop and try to buy a bullshit, they ask me whose jersey I want. I say, give me one with the general manager's name on the back, because he's the only one that's going to be here in three years.
0: Perhaps the Warriors might be the exception to that, but I'm not sure of that either.
1: Well, the Warriors, you know, I think the first pro game Larry, ever, Larry Bird ever played in was also the game where the first three-point shot was made. And for many years, the three-point shot was used as I think it was meant to be used by the people who uh, put it in the league, which is it was something to be used usually late in the game when you're down by double digits. And it would k- give you a chance to come back in a very short period of time. We saw great comebacks like that in that era. I'm thinking of the Reggie Miller game against the, the Knicks in the playoffs one year, where he scored like, I forgot what it was, but like nine points in, a, in a less than 20 seconds or something. And um, that's how it was used. So you had the whole middle game that we all think of as basketball, which is Kareem abdul sky skyhook or Kevin McHale posting people up or the fight under the boards where all the players are battling for the ball. Suddenly somebody ran the numbers and figured out you'd be better off taking pretty much all three-point shots and making 30% of them, then taking all two-point shots and making 60% of them. So I think the 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 California teams are really based around that idea, and everybody followed it and had all these unintended consequences. And one is that when you take a three-point shot and miss, there's a completely different kind of rebound, as you know. So it hollowed out the game inside. The game inside became less important, and so there was no role for players who played just an inside game, or at least not as many of them. And, um, and then also players who just were just made three pointers and couldn't do, couldn't play inside. There was a role for them. And now I don't think there's any way back from it for people who grew up with the game, whole elements of the game, the passing. The battle inside, all that stuff seems
0: to be gone. The other thing, you mentioned this a few moments ago, but I think it's important because it really reflects this era and these teams that you took, these four teams that you talk about, is the way in which they really reflected their community. They were so much a part of the community. Talk about that some more.
1: Well, I mean, you really got a sense. The Pistons felt like their city was overlooked. Their team was overlooked. They were a much better team than anyone gave them credit for. And when you talk to the veterans of that team, they still feel that way. They feel like they're sort of put in the shade by these more glamorous cities. So Detroit had this incredible team because they virtually had two starting teams. If you look who was coming off the bench for them, their bench team was arguably better than their first strand team. Their bench team was um, Rodman, John Sally, Vinnie Johnson, um, and it was you know and Buda Edwards, it was like an incredible team. So. Basically, they were this great team, but they were, and they, because they were sort of overlooked and they were told that they were only winning because they were playing violently, they created the bad boys thing and hugged it. And it was like that's how Detroit felt. And they really bonded with the city. And the players were out and about in the city of Detroit, in the city of Chicago, Boston, LA, in a way that no celebrity is anymore because with the phones and everything, it's too dangerous. And I remember when I was writing my book about the 85 Bears, that was a team that really. Bonded with the city of Chicago and seemed to reflect how the city of Chicago saw itself. And I asked uh, one of the McCaskies, Brian McCaskey, the owner of the team, why the teams now aren't like that. He said, go to the practices. When all the fans line up to watch the players go to, get, go to the parking lot, all the players are staring at their phones. They're not interacting with the fans at all. And we're talking in the 80s. This was a time when Mark Grace, who played first base for the Cubs, used to go after every day game and drink with fans in Murphy's across the street. So I just think that there's a much bigger wall between the players and the fans. And there's much more of a sense that the players are hired guns. They come in sometimes late in the season before the playoffs with one specific purpose to win, get their paycheck, and then they move on. And it's kind of, I, when it first started, I thought, I don't know how sports can survive it because as a fan, so much of it was going through. If you're a kid, your whole life, Michael Jordan is there. As soon as you become aware of basketball at age 10, let's say, it's because of the young Michael Jordan, then as you go through uh, junior high school and high school and then into college or whatever, go out on your own, you're watching him age alongside you. And it gives you this incredible sense of identification. And when you remove that aspect of the game, it just becomes a thing about winning. And that makes it very hard to be interested when they're not winning, which is most of the time. So you would turn in, tune in to watch a Cubs game, even when they were... 20 games out of first place, if it was like the last season of Ryan Sandberg and you wanted to see him finish his career. All that's gone, I feel
0: like. Also, the number of, and you mentioned this, the number of, of Hall of Fame players during this 87-88 season was really remarkable when you when you look back on it.
1: I have a list of them. I think, I think it's the most ever of any season. And the list is incredible because it's a list not just of Hall of Fame players, but of really the best players of all time. And it spanned the whole history of the NBA because the oldest guy on that list that year was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who was 40. And when he'd first come into the league, he played with old guys who'd been playing basketball before there was an NBA. And the young guys on the list, Reggie Miller and Scottie Pippen, they played with guys at the end of their careers who would continue to play basically just till the last couple of years. So I think that's almost like the focal point of the history of the NBA. It's like dead center. And you can see both ends of it. And you can see, you know, think of how the game changed from when Kareem came into the league in 1972 or whatever it was until when he retired, like in 1989 or 18. So the whole, you know, that was the birth of modern basketball and basketball becoming really for its time anyway the most exciting sport in the world.
0: One of the things that, that you mentioned is that even the 88 draft brought in a lot of young stars that would become big deals in their own right.
1: Yeah, well, the big, the really big thing is what didn't happen, which is, as you know, this is a terrible thing, but Len Bias, and I remember right. I was in, I think I was in college, I, I, I just remember it happening. Len Bias was drafted before this season by the Boston Celtics. He was taken with their number one pick. Red Auerbach, who ran the Celtics, had been sort of, mentoring him and bringing him along since almost he was in junior high school and he you know made sure he got him the draft and he was people talk about Len Bias at Maryland they say he wasn't maybe quite quite as good as Michael Jordan but he was in that league he was going to be one of the greatest players in the history of the game people thought and his idea is he would come into Boston and not only would he add longevity by giving them another star player he would give a breather to Bird, who had a bad back and was getting old, and McHale, who playing on a broken foot and was getting old, and allow those guys to extend their careers by letting them sit on the bench. He died of a cocaine overdose the night of the draft, and it blew this hole in the Boston Celtics. It really ended their dynasty. One, because it put a funk over everything. I mean, it's the saddest thing you can imagine. And two, when the, when the Celtics went and played like the Pistons, and that second team of the Pistons came into the game, they would run up the score on the bull, on the Celtics second stringers. So Bird and McHale would have to come back before they had a chance to properly rest. And I really think it sped along them to the end of their careers. And even like Michael Jordan, when the Bulls played the Pistons, Jordan would often play the whole entire game because he couldn't come out against
0: them. When you talk to some of these guys that are still around about that season, what do they think of it? How do they look back on it?
1: Well, so, of course, they all think that this is the best era. This is their era. And that this year is probably the best year. A lot of them agreed with me because all those four teams were really competitive and really good. If you wait a couple of years later, the Celtics come apart. You know, the Lakers become a different team. And so it's like that, that's when they're all good. Like, so, but Danny Ainge had the best quote, I thought, this guard for the Celtics who I talked to, who said, here's how you know it was the best era. Think of all the teams who would have won championships at any other time, but didn't because of the great teams in in both divisions. So he was talking about like the Cleveland Cavaliers who were supposed to be a great team, the Atlanta Hawks who had Dominique Wilkins, and they just couldn't get past the Celtics. And then you had a little bit later, you had teams like the Knicks and the Pacers who couldn't get past the Bulls. There were so many uh, great teams and it was the end, really the last era of the great centers in the NBA. Mm. Because Kareem was retiring and Jordan was proving, would prove, you don't need a great center to win in the NBA. And we're still in that era. So when you were when they were playing then, think about a guy like Kareem who was 40, who he had a battle. He had to go into Houston and battle uh Akeem olajuwon and he had to battle um Ralph Sampson, if you remember him. And there was, you know, Ewing was playing for the Knicks already. And there was just these, you know, and 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 uh, Robert Parrish and the Celtics and Bill Lamber in Detroit. I mean, there were just great punishing centers all over the NBA.
0: Can you think of another, another season, another time when there were as many competitive teams and as many superstars that were really in their prime?
1: No, I really can't. I mean, it's almost like New York baseball in the 50s <laughs> or whatever, when the Giants, the Dodgers and the Yankees were all great. You know, because of course that was this is like almost like that because now teams can fly by plane, so they're not so far apart and they can have these rivalries and Chicago and Detroit are very close and Boston isn't that far away. So it's like those three teams to me are like the Giants, uh, the Yankees and the Dodgers, you know, and then you throw in the Lakers who really raise basketball to an art. I mean, if you go back and watch Magic Johnson pass, I don't think anybody's come close to him as the way he would pass. People don't remember, but the big problem with him was his teammates would be fooled by his passes. So they wouldn't see him come and they get hit in the face by the ball. You had to like educate his teammates how to play with him because it was almost like he was a magician. And that was kind of this thing. Pete Maravich was similar. Pete Maravich ended up on the Celtics at the beginning of Bird's career. He overlapped a little bit, but he was, he blew out his knee and he was kind of too early. The kind of basketball he played, he was one of the only guys playing it. The other is Dr. J, who's, of course, a great, great star and won you know championships and is still a huge star. But he was a little bit too whirly in that there weren't enough players for him to play with the way he played in his prime. And one of the reasons why these teams were so great, I think, is because they had each other to battle against. I mean, the Pistons were built specifically to beat the Celtics. I had to beat the Celtics to get to the championship. And the Celtics had the biggest, most physical front line in the NBA, a Hall of Fame forward line with Bird, Parrish, and McHale. And the Celtics played that way because they had to beat the 76ers, which had Dr. J, and they had to become big and strong to do that. So to me, this era is a little, little bit like the Muhammad Ali, George Fre- uh, Joe Frazier, George Foreman era, which is the reason why they became so great, and we remember them, is because they weren't the only great team. You know, they had to battle every step of the way. And that year, even in the West, which I'm not talking about as much, to get to the finals, the Lakers, all except their first series, their first playoff series, every playoff round went seven games. So by the time they got to the end, they'd played almost like a third, another third of a season. And those games were the most physical, intense games they played all year and physically punishing. So back then, watching the NBA was a little bit like watching the NHL playoffs now, And that it was like a war of attrition and was who was going to stay healthy enough to get out there. And all these guys were playing hurt. They all played hurt. And um, the big question is who could play when hurt? What I was amazed with by Isaiah Thomas is Isaiah didn't, he played better after he got hurt. It was like getting hurt, focused his mind and made him angry. And, you know, we had this incredible performance in the game six of the finals that year where he almost broke his ankle and he came back on one leg and scored 25 points in the third quarter, still a playoff record, you know, cause he was just determined to win before he lost use of his leg completely. So and twice during those playoffs, by my count, by watching Isaiah was knocked close to unconsciousness and both times came back and contributed to the win. In One case, this was really funny. He only came back to he was like knocked out during the Bulls series and he left the game. He left the uh, stadium and he went to the locker room, but the locker room was locked and nobody could find the key. He came back to the bench because he didn't know where else to go. And they said, oh, you're back. And they put him in the game and he won the game.
0: It is remarkable. And not to put too fine a point on it, but it is, was such a different game in so many respects than what we see today.
1: Well, it was so dependent on passing. And passing was the game. That's what Burt always said he loved when Bill Walton came to the Celtics at the end of his career and he was healthy for one season because Walton loved to play that way too. And if you go watch those old Celtics teams, they're amazing the amount of passing they're doing and they don't really carry the ball down court, they pass it down court. And what's wild is when they get into a position where they work the ball around, they've got an open shot, sometimes they'll just pass one more time, almost just because they're having so much fun that they want to take another shot at it. And that's, you know, and all the little things that we miss. missed. So um, it was just, I think it was the apogee of the game, the way the creators of the game couldn't even imagine it. It was the it was just the peak, you know, like, like like I said, like baseball at a certain point, when you had pitchers throwing very fast, the games, you know, two hours, and, and these very tight games with a lot of, you know, this is like that era for basketball. It's just everything is right. And the game's always evolving. And there's rule changes. And those things, sometimes you get a new game because somebody figures out a new way to win. But sometimes the new game is a little bit inferior to the old game. And I think that's the case here.
0: Rich Cohn, the book is When the Game Was War, the NBA's Greatest Season. Rich, I thank you so much for spending time with us.
1: Yeah, thanks for talking to me.
0: Thank you. Thank you.